welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippen, along with Lucia Holsether. We're your host for this conversation with the Reverend Dr. Angela M. Yarber. She's the executive director of the Holy Women's Icon Project. She has a doctorate in arts and religion from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. And she is a dancer. She is a teacher. She is a sustainability activist, among many, many other things. And we're going to be talking to Angela today about her embodied pedagogy and her connections with social justice. So welcome, Angela, to Nothing Never Happens. Thanks for having me. Hi, Angela. Um, thank you. Thank you again for being on this podcast. I, um, I just want to start out with a question that is specific, but I hope you'll take the specificity also as an opportunity to talk to us a little bit about what the Holy Women Icons Project is um, for our listeners. When I look at your writing, um, writing about you, the word justice is a recurrent one. Um, it's a name, I think, for the work that you are trying to do in the world and to sustain. And it sometimes is also the thing that when one is fighting for it can cause burnout. Um, and so you offer, you offer resources to help prevent that. I'm wondering if you would elaborate on what exactly you mean by justice and how that fits into the Holy Women Icons Project. Well, that is a heavy question to start with. <laughs> I'm really excited that you asked it. Um, I think by justice, I'm always referring to social justice. And um, as an intersectional feminist and intersectional eco-feminist um, organization and person, I see that manifesting in a lot of ways. So um, I imagine you've talked about intersectionality before mm -hmm. on this Radical Pedagogy podcast, but looking at all of those isms that are used to divide, um, oppress, and marginalize. So Oftentimes as feminists, we are thought of as working for justice on, on behalf of gender, and that is important. But if we only work on behalf of gender, then we're also ignoring the issues of race, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, age, religion, all of those other things that for many people intersect hence the name intersectionality, to um, create multiple oppressed identities within one person or one group. And so at the Holy Women Icons Project, we endeavor to empower marginalized women by telling the stories of revolutionary holy women through art, writing, and special mm -hmm. events. These special events refer to some of the retreats that we lead, both in person in Hawaii when I go places online and to the academic courses that we offer in partnership with schools and seminaries. And I think much like the work that you're doing here at this podcast, we believe that education without the heart is no education at all. I believe that was Aristotle who said that. Um, and that the, the thrust of our work isn't just knowledge for knowledge sake, but knowledge to make the world a more just and equitable and sustainable and beautiful place. So oftentimes when I talk about justice, um, I've gotten into some interesting dialogues with other activists who often view the arts as very periphery or as decorative. 
that they can't be agents for social change. And I think if you just go to um, some of the founders of Black Lives Matter, for example, um, most of whom are artists, both performing and visual artists, um, you'll see that throughout the history of activism, arts have always played a really important role. And for me at our organization, at the Holy Women Icons Project nonprofit, the goal of justice is beauty. And the example that I often give is that justice is not had when those who are hungry are fed cheap processed foods and those who are without a home are given a dank and rickety shelter, Mm -hmm. but rather when everyone is delighted and nourished by the foods on their plates and inspired by the beauty of their surroundings, then justice has come. To not just say that we live in this world that's full of deep pain and suffering and discrimination, while simultaneously saying that we live in a world that causes our jaw to drop in wonder at the beauty. I say this here on the big island of Hawaii where I live, Mm -hmm. and I can literally hear the ocean crashing. But to create a bridge between these two realities, to say we can imagine that a better world is possible, and through various forms of the arts and activism, we can work together to create that world. And I don't think that that's just some Pollyanna pie-in-the-sky attitude. Mm -hmm. I believe it as uh, Tina Pippen has just come out of her class, that this is eschatological imagination, that this (laughs) is creating heaven here on earth in beautiful ways. And that was quite a meandering response to your question, (laughs) but I hope that that tapped on several things that can stir up again throughout this conversation. Yeah, well, one of the things that you mentioned is um, the place where you are, which is uh, the Big Island of Hawaii, and um, your own uh, enacting of uh, place-based or land-based pedagogy um, and Uh, Could you talk a little bit about what it means to uh, teach and um, to live sustainably and to make all those connections in terms of a holistic life uh, where in the place that you are? Yes, I think that's such an important question and has a lot of, I have a lot of layered responses Mm -hmm. um, that are more nuanced than I can go into and some that that can be problematic if not um, nuanced properly. So one is um, the history of peoples living on Hawaii, especially for the Kanaka Maoli, which is the term for um, Hawaiian native persons, um, because the term Hawaiian can't be applied to me because I'm a Haole, a white person living in Hawaii. So no matter how long I live here, I'm never Hawaiian because I'm not Kanaka Maoli, I'm a resident. But the history of of much of Polynesian culture and of most indigenous cultures um, across the world is is one of radical interconnectedness, which we see just in the word aloha um, here in Hawaii. So it's not just that commodified, baptized, capitalized version of aloha that white Christian missionaries in the military have put into place as they occupy these islands, but an acknowledgement of the breath and life in you and in response, you acknowledge the breath and life in me, and not just of other people, but of all sentient beings. And in most indigenous cultures, and here in the Aloha Aina movement or love of land movement on um, in Hawaii, um, it's also to acknowledge the breath and life embedded in, in the actual land here. So I'm on the big island of Hawaii, which is the home to Pele, 
the goddess of volcanoes. And if folks were paying attention to the news about a year and a half ago, you know that we had some pretty big eruptions, um, eight miles from my house, so I could see it um, from my yard, a bright red sky, um, where new land is being created. And so our island is bigger than it was a year and a half ago because lava expanded out into the ocean, that lava has hardened. Now we have new black sand beaches. Mm -hmm. um, so here, um, What's interesting is that so many of the things that, um, that I believe personally and that the Holy Women Icons Project does, whether that's um, eco-feminism or living sustainably by off-grid living, so we're not tied into a grid for power, we get our power from the sun, our water from the rain, um, or the arts, or gender theories and feminism, and spirituality in these indigenous ways of knowing and here in the Aloha Aina movement in Hawaii, those are all interconnected. So what we would see in most Western classrooms is that if you want to learn about sustainability or ecology, feminism, spirituality, the arts, you would need to take a minimum of four different courses to learn about those things. But what we're trying to do is acknowledge the interconnectedness of all of them, how they're mutually informative. Mm -hmm. And we have one course, for example, where we touch on all of those things and that this is embedded and obvious in most indigenous ways of knowing. So when I go up to Mauna Kea where there's current um, protections and protests um, trying to prevent the TMT telescope being built on mm -hmm. one of the most sacred mountains here, um, the protectors um, would say at the free university they've created, um, Pu'uhuluhulu, in their classes on how to be a better Haole or how to be a better white person, um, different advice for decolonizing living here. And mm -hmm. so what my wife Elizabeth and I are trying to do with the Holy Women Icons Project here in this space and in the courses and the retreats that we lead is to honor the Aina. And what I say is to shine an excavating light on the women from history and mythology who have done this work. So um, I'll nuance that a little bit more here. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, I think that uh, white women in particular, and um, to use the hashtag spiritual white women, like mm -hmm. to uh, pick and choose things from other cultures and traditions, appropriate them by lifting up the goddess Pele, for example, or Kali from Hinduism, and then shine the light back on themselves um, to say, oh, look at how this applies to my life and I'm destroying in order to create. And, and you know, that is a little facet of these things, mm -hmm. but instead to turn that flashlight around and shine it on these women from this mythology and history in these excavations because otherwise the stories remain hidden in the crevices of our canons at best or strategically erased at worst and so th that's something that we're trying to do to reckon with our role here um, on an island that is already as yet colonized and being colonized and currently occupied by the military illegally to say, what is our role in this as accomplices and allies? And that is to serve as interlocutors or, or conversation partners so that when folks come out here, um, that we can say, you know, it's not just paradise and palm trees and sitting in a hammock sipping a Mai Tai, um, but that there's this rich, rich history and this rich mythology and a current reality that's happening that is strategically erasing the lives and the land 
here and that we have a responsibility as ethicist for my wife, artist for me, activist for both of us to mm -hmm. lift up those realities all simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, well, oh, thank you for that. Um, I wonder, just building on your answer here, oh, so much of um, the work, particularly the retreats that you have and some of the pedagogical work that you do is framed as happening on a kind of intersection of self-care and justice. And I wonder if you could reflect a little bit more about what that intersection means to you, especially as distinct from this hashtag spiritual white women thing that you um, that you just mentioned. Um, what is what's the particularity that you're trying to get at by thinking about that intersection? That's a fantastic question and something that I wrestle with regularly. Um, there's a lot of talk with activists today about not so much self-care, but community care. Mm -hmm. And both in the retreats that we do and even in the course um, that we lead out here, Embodied Ecofeminism in the Arts, there's a big emphasis on Audre Lorde. And um, yeah. we see her quote a lot and I think sometimes kind of ripped out of context the the notion caring for myself is not self-indulgence it is self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare and it's interesting because there's a part of me that um, that has a really ick reaction when I see that on um, like on a thin white yogi woman's Instagram page <laughs> or something, you know, where, you know, it could be if I unpacked that that particular woman could be doing this work. I don't know. Uh -huh. But that I think that sometimes that's thrown out there to say like, treat yourself girl, like take a bubble bath, drink a glass of wine. And I'm all about, that's fine to do that. But the way that I explain it is if you'll bear with me here is with this um, parallel or analogy with a power saw, I know that sounds strange. As a queer person, I say it's a very lesbianic metaphor, but this is what I say in all of the Holy Women Icons Project in the course that we teach and in the retreats, it's a lot like a power saw in that if you are working on a project and your power saw stops working, there's often one of three problems. The first would be that your blade is too dull and it either needs sharpening or replacement. The second is that the battery that charges your saw is completely drained and you need to recharge it by plugging it in. And the third is that you have a faulty power source so that the place that charges your saw or your battery is faulty and it's not going to cause it to recharge. I think that most of the hashtag spiritual white women um, empowerment work focuses on only those first two and in separate ways. And what I mean by that is this, they'll say um, that we need to do blade sharpening, i.e. behavioral changes or perspective changes. So mindfulness, meditation, exercise, yoga, and those are important things. You know, I think it's important to turn inward and reflect on ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, but often when someone wants to do that, they go on something like a yoga retreat where you wake up at 5 a.m., you do three hours of yoga, you eat three pomegranate seeds for lunch. And you know, and things like that. That's very radical uh, blade sharpening exercises. Or uh, people talk about self-care. So that's the obvious um, parallel here with the recharging of the battery. You're drained. Mm -hmm. So get eight hours of sleep. 
take a nap, have a bubble bath, go to a spa. Um, and I think a lot of women's empowerment work, both in the classroom and at retreats, focuses on one of those two things or just those two things. They say, if you are exhausted, if you are drained, if you're overwhelmed, um, you either need to turn inward and change your behaviors and perspectives, or mm -hmm. you need to do some self-care. But they forget that there's also a power source at play here. And I think in the world that we live in, the power structures that be are systematically designed to disempower women in marginalized communities. So when we go to plug that saw in or that battery in, it's not going to recharge because those systems, be it the academy, the church, spirituality, popular culture, politics, business, the list goes on and on, are not designed to recharge us. So that would be like saying, get yourself some self-care. I've made you a bubble bath. And you get into the bubble bath, and it's actually itch powder. Um, so what we try to do at the Holy Women Icons Project at our retreats and in this course is to address all three of these power saw issues simultaneously. Yes, we need to turn inward and do some blade sharpening. But if you're still feeling exhausted, it's not because you aren't turning inward enough. It's not because you aren't working hard enough. It's not just because you need to change your perspective. And it's not just because you need a spa day or a day to recharge. It's because these systems are designed to disenfranchise us. So when we engage in radical self-care, it's for collective empowerment. When we blade sharpen, it's for collective blade sharpening so that we have the energy and the power to acknowledge and then dismantle or subvert these power structures that disenfranchise us. Mm -hmm. Does that yeah. kind of answer the question that you're asking there? Yeah, I love the metaphor. Um, I, I will probably use that. I, I just thought of when um, a Yale University dean actively involved in busting the union sent out to all of um, their advisees it, that Audre Lorde quote and just being completely horrified. Um, so thank you for, um, for framing it differently for us. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That it's, it's not just coming from some random person. It's coming from Audre Lorde, sister outsider, black lesbian, warrior, mother, poet, I think was, mm -hmm. I might have mixed up the order of some of the words, but that's how she divined herself. It's not just like, I can't think of an example of a person, but you know, some Western skinny white yoga teacher telling right. people to go Somebody's home and, Instagram. yes, right. It's not about having a <laughs> glass of Chardonnay. It's about <laughs> recharging so that we can dismantle these power structures or at least acknowledge them. Because I think that there are a lot of women and marginalized folks who make themselves feel bad and think that they aren't working hard enough or they're worthless because they're so exhausted. Yeah. And instead to say, no, there are these power structures at play that are specifically designed to make you feel this way. It's not you, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, along with Alder Lord, you've also uh, used other engaged theorists. And I'm thinking in particular of uh, Bell Hooks and Parker Palmer, from whom you um, got the framework of knowing, being, and doing, which you're, you know, giving really wonderful concrete examples and metaphors here. So could you talk more about um, how you use uh, this kind of this, this kind of pedagogical uh, theory uh, in your art and in your teaching and um, to engage people in the work of justice in, in, the, in your workshops and classrooms. 
Sure. Well, I have to give a big uh, word of gratitude to you, Tina, because you're the person who introduced me to Bell Hooks and teaching mm -hmm. to transgress back, gosh, 2005. So we're looking at almost 15 years ago okay. when I was your teaching intern. <laughs> and and this, there's a phrase um, from the text, teaching to transgress, that has accompanied me in every course I've taught, in every syllabus I've designed, the classroom remains the most radical space of possibility in the academy. Mm -hmm. And I always remember whether I was teaching during my doctoral program or when I was finished and taught at Wake Forest University, both in the seminary and in the women's gender and sexuality studies department, how confined I felt by most classrooms. Um, with my background as a professional dancer, and even as someone who I'm not, I don't dance anymore, um, I'm retired, but when I enter into a classroom space, being limited to desks and the walls is, is very confining for me. And I think that it's challenging in a lot of classrooms to get students up out of their desks, both because of the way the classroom is designed and because that's not how we're taught to value education, that it's supposed to be this very heady, um, ethereal, theoretical work and that if your body or your heart gets involved that somehow that makes it too soft mm -hmm. and and I encountered this a lot I think of even in my PhD program because I was focusing on dance as a form of interfaith dialogue and I had a lot of great scholars who I greatly respected say things to me like well well aren't you just leaping around a room or mm -hmm. different yeah. things like that and now since so much of my class happens outside where students are literally planting and harvesting and getting dirt under their fingernails and mm -hmm. mine too um, that people see that as something that's altogether separate mm -hmm. and I think a lot um, about these radical indigenous ways of knowing that have paved the way I'm reading finishing up uh, Robin Hall Kemmerer's book Braiding Sweetgrass oh, and yeah. she's a botanist right and then also mm -hmm. um, in her tradition, like the plants speak and sing to you. But when she went into academic classrooms, they didn't see that as valid. And so this braiding together of these two traditions mindfully, I think is really radical. And I think that mm -hmm. to separate them is a very Western notion. Um, and Bell Hooks would talk about that certainly. And so I think of this a really neat example that will lead me to the knowing being and doing framework of Parker Palmer mm -hmm. of um, when I started my doctoral program, I specifically went out to Berkeley to study with Doug Adams, um, who died my second year in the program. So I was finishing up coursework mm -hmm. and he died way too young. Um, but, you know, as he as he was literally dying, he was singing Man of La Mancha's Dream the Impossible Dream. So this mm -hmm. he was very happy to be reunited with his wife who had recently died. And um, and so I was bereft, like many in my field. And I was also without an advisor. Yeah. And so, you know, like you have this feeling of you're, you're mourning, you're grieving, you don't want to disturb this, but you're also like, how am I going to keep going with my program? And who was, who would it be to step up and become the advisor and the mentor for this queer feminist Baptist dancing person that I was, mm -hmm. but um, this world renowned Buddhist scholar and priest and calligrapher, Japanese calligrapher, Dr. Ronald Nakasone. And in that, it was such a gift because he um, bridged a lot of Eastern and Western ways of teaching. 
He mm-hmm. interestingly grew up on Oahu, uh, speaking pidgin. And so now on Big Island, I hear the cadence of his voice everywhere I go. Um, but we did this research trip in Thailand and studying Buddhist art and architecture. And we were up at this very tall mountain in Chiang Mai, looking out over this beautiful rainforest. And he kind of walks up to me and just says, in a, in a rather terse way, I'm very glad you came on this trip. You know, in the West, when you graduate, they say goodbye, but in the East, you're stuck with me for life. Hmm. And something about that has stuck with me because not only did he, of course, teach me about theories and methodologies and forms of interfaith dialogue, and I got to stand by him as he received an award from the King of Thailand when for doing his work on Mahayana Buddhism, um, but that so much of the learning happens around shared tables where you're sharing a meal together, when you're hiking up a mountain to see a temple, uh, when you're literally stepping into the shoes of another to dance their dances or participate in their rituals. And so that has really stuck with me in a beautiful way. And particularly as we're creating these courses here on Hawaii Island where seminaries and universities partner with us to send students out here to say that this learning doesn't just happen when we're sitting in a desk and having a conversation and reading theory, that is important. Mm-hmm. But also when we're planting and harvesting and knowing, being, and doing that, um, for example, in this class, before we actually start each day at 930, students are supposed to have 30 minutes in the morning to engage in some sort of um, meditative practice, whether that's running or sitting by the ocean or journaling or, or something to get their head and their heart in the right space to engage in this really important learning. Um, and then throughout the day, they spend some time painting, doing this intentional creativity process that I have of painting icons where each step of the process also involves reading, embodied exercises, rituals, guided journaling, meditation, um, so that then they leave with this tangible work of art that reminds them of the work that they're doing in addition to working in a garden and doing research and having dialogues and debates and all those things that one would traditionally do in the classroom but i think that when we operate in this framework that parker palmer lays out of knowing being and doing that that has to thereby involve the head the heart Mm -hmm. and the body and to sever any one of those means that you're not getting a full holistic education that it's not deeply Mm -hmm. in your bones. Um, And I know that in a lot of the courses that I've taught and even in my own work, when there's some movement or gesture that goes along with it that I can do in my body, then I know the knowledge and the wisdom has become real for me Mm -hmm. when it can be moved in my body. And I think that that's true. Um, Even, you know, I have two young children and we're doing this homeschool co-op here And that's the way you teach kindergartners and first graders. And and there's something that happens when students finish elementary school where it's like people say, oh, well, your head and your heart don't matter anymore. Hmm. And you just need to carry your head throughout the rest of your education. So a way to bring all of those together and say, my body can teach me amazing radical things that my head alone cannot. Mm -hmm. And the same is true with our hearts. And that doesn't make it soft or unacademic. It makes it holistic and embodied and engaged in a real world. Yeah.